Welcome to this first episode of Unpacking the Bible with the Dr. Gordon Harris and me, Jonathan Clark. We're really excited that you can join us. We'll be looking at the shape of the Bible in this episode. So sit back and relax and enjoy as we just dig into what is this thing, the Bible. So without further ado, we're going to launch right into uh, the topic for tonight, which is um, what is the Bible? What is the Bible? That's what we're going to be talking about, Gordon. Um, what What is this thing that we base our lives around? Why are we following a 2000 plus year old text? Um, in this session, we're going to be talking about what's the shape of the Bible. Uh, and then next week, we're going to be talking about how do we know we can trust the Bible? Uh, and then the final week is going to be, uh, how do we read the Bible? How do we, how do we practically read it? So, um, let's go for it. So I, I'm going to ask Gordon some questions and I'm just going to try and pull all the gold I can out of him. So Gordon, if we approach this, actually, let's pray first. Should we pray? That's a good idea. Um, Jesus, we're asking that you would, um, that you would just come and unveil scripture to us, that you would reveal just incredible revelation in us, that we would get more of a heart for it. We would understand it in a deeper way. And uh, just thank you for this incredible text that you've given us to, uh, to be able to encounter you through. So yeah, come and speak to us tonight. Okay. Uh, so Gordon, um, what, what is the Bible about? I think that's maybe the most basic question. What is the Bible about? Well, it's, a, it's such a, it's an interesting question because I think, you know, we're living in this culture now where people have some passing familiarity with the Bible, but, but um, maybe don't really know what it's about. And I think the easiest way to talk about it is just to talk about the shape of it. And, uh, you know, you, you begin, the first book actually starts with in the beginning and uh, there's a there's a kind of creation story that's told, and a lot of stories told in between. And then, you know, there's a there's an end when you get to the end of the the New Testament. There's a uh, what you know in general kind of picture, a sketch of of the end, uh, or at least a transition from how we know life to be. So, so there's this this sort of meta story, as they as they call it, that begins uh, at the start. And like many uh, stories. Uh, ancient stories, especially, I don't know if we do this now, but ancient stories, they're often really concerned about uh, uh, unfolding reality. What is what is reality like? What is life like? Uh, and and lots of different cultures kind of do this. Uh, but the Bible's uh, the Bible's actually quite fabulous in this, and and it talks about ultimate questions really, right from from the get go. Who are we? What, you know, where are we? What are we here for? Uh, what's the meaning of history? How do we live in the middle of reality? And uh, the Bible is really quite fabulous in in doing this, uh, right right from the beginning. So you start in the first book, right off the bat, with a uh, you know beginning to build a worldview. What is reality about? Uh, so you know you start with a singular God. For instance, in Genesis, you start with uh, things that are in creation, like plants and stars and sun and moon. And in contrast to how things are normally talked about in the world, 
or in, in other religions and other uh, views, worldviews, there's a singular God, and the world is not filled with other deities. It's just this singular God, and everything else is, is created. But, but also this reality is not just matter. There's also uh, things that we don't know, things behind matter, uh, spiritual realities. So, you know, the big questions are, who are we? Well, we're people who are made special, we're made in this image of God. That's a that's a, a phrase that was only used really of kings. So every single person being uh, discussed like this is, it's it's stunning actually. Uh, where are we? Well, how do, how do we describe the world? Is it chaotic? No, actually, it's God's good earth. It's ordered and it's and it's stable. And why are we here? Well, we're here to rule. We're here to steward uh, the world as representatives of God. And what's wrong is not the gods, it's uh, not the lack of education, it's not the lack of universal health care, although those things are obviously important things. Uh, it's actually uh, human disobedience. It's human independence from God. This is the reason that the world has the shape that it does. And the solution, well, we don't actually know right up front, but we're kind of given the hint that we have to look forward, just like you look forward to the solution of any any story, perhaps the seed of the woman, as you see in chapter uh, 3 of Genesis. So uh, th- what's fascinating about this, uh, Jonathan, is that th- these stories, especially the beginning of Genesis, tell a, a very similar but very different in some ways story than the major stories being told uh, in, in cultures around them. So, for instance, one of the, the major stories going around in biblical, you know, before Jesus came, was the story of Atrahasis, the Atrahasis epic. And in this epic, which was copied and sent all over the Middle East, uh, to you know, all throughout civilization, human beings were made to do the drudgery of the gods, the work of the gods. The gods didn't want to do it because it was just dull and difficult. They were the minions, not the, you know, not the yellow minions from from the movie, but um, you know, minions. Uh, and it was, uh, and, and in fact, they reproduced and were noisy. And this was so bothered the gods that there was now that you know they promoted a series of catastrophes to cut down on human population because they were such a bother. And this culminated in the you know, really disaster, which almost wiped everybody out, which was the flood. Now, when you, when you come to Genesis, the beginning of the, of the Bible, in contrast, human beings are not minions. Human beings are, have this, this value, this significance, and the task that they're given is, is fantastic, actually. We don't realize the task that we have. We're, uh, you know, we're, you know God, we always think of God has created this world, and it's fantastic, you know. And then he, he, you know, that's it. Good, good job, God. And there is that sense, but in fact, God takes us as His representatives and says, "Now take it to the next level. I got stuff for you to do, divine work for you to do, to steward this world, and take it to the next level." And so that that's that's amazing. And and not only that, but He says, "Hey, look, have sex." Have a lot of sex. Have a lot of children, and those children, when they grow up, have more sex and fill the earth. It's totally different than, than one of the major stories that's happening in its time. 
So, uh, so as you as you begin, uh, you see something totally different, totally different than has been told anywhere in the world before, and all of this is a reflection of the Creator. So, the first picture of reality is here: there's a God, a singular God, and He's ordered, He's stable, He's good, He's He's for human beings. Uh, we reflect Him. Uh, it's it's pretty fantastic, really. And then, of course. Uh, you know, you 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 go on from there, and the rest of the Bible, in a sense, is unpacking who God is and how do we live in the middle of this world, which, of course, we we've been part of uh, breaking it actually in some ways. Uh, so uh, that you know that that's that's really in a sense what it's about, and of course, the whole solution that we're looking for, you get to with Jesus, and then uh, and then on to the to the end. Okay, so so that's kind of the big picture of who God is, what He's made. That's kind of where we tuck into the the picture. Uh, but when I come to read the Bible, it's huge, right? Like this thing is sixty six books, and like it's such different styles all smashed together. And sometimes that feels beautiful, and other times that feels confusing. Um, so, so what, what's the storyline? Like if, if, uh, if the Bible is telling a very different story of creation to other religious beliefs, like in, in the world around it, what, what is the story of the Bible really about? Like if, if we ask people that they, they might give us the John three sixteen passage, but I'm like, well, that's good. But that doesn't, um, for me that that's not describing all of Genesis and Exodus and, and the Psalms, like. It's it's more nuanced than that, isn't it? So, can you just can you take us through like what's the what's the shape of of the story arc? Let's say. Yeah, I think if you were going to put it in one sort of phrase or two, it would be human beings by their independence and disobedience. I mean, we call that sin, but you know that's just a kind of a little word. But uh, essentially, that that caused a brokenness in the order of things. Uh, we're no longer in our proper place, and that that created a, a disharmony and a broken kind of relationship with God, and a brokenness in us as well. And really, the uh, God is uh, working towards that solution to restore the relationship with us and uh, help us to to come to the to the uh, a, ri- a right relationship with Him. So, uh, you know, you 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 have this beginning in Genesis, the seed of the woman, maybe. Uh, we're looking for who, who's who. How's God going to fix this? Uh, you come to Noah, and you come to Abraham. You have this promise that through Abraham, you know, the whole world will be blessed. Ah, okay. So it's through Abraham, and of course, then you go through the the other patriarchs, and then you hit the book of Exodus, which is probably, in my mind, the most important book outside of Genesis in the Old Testament. And here you have this uh, this family now has grown to the size of a nation, but you know a nation, uh, for one thing, a nation, you know that they have no concept of what it means to be a nation. They don't know how to live as a nation, and you need laws and you need those kinds of things. But they're also in slavery. So you have this major event where God reveals Himself as Yahweh, the I Am, uh, or it's a play on that word, and He begins to, you know. Uh, by you know incrementally increased miracles uh, or judgments, whatever you want to call those, prove that he's he's the real God and and that the Egyptians need to let 
his people go. And so he rescues them out of the slavery. Uh, of course, everybody knows about the Red Sea, through the Red Sea, through the desert to Sinai. And this event is, uh, it's, it's possibly the greatest event in a way in the Old Testament because it provides this physical, mo- impossible model of what God is going to do. So you see later on when the Jews are in exile, how do you talk about the impossibleness of God bringing them back to their own land? Well, it's, it's like an exodus. You know, he's bringing them out of this ugly pagan world into their own land. How do you talk about what Jesus does? Well, it's so spiritual. I don't know how you, how you do that. Well, it's, a, it's, it's like he takes us out of slavery to sin. And uh, so it's a, an, a vital event, a critical event. And, uh, of course, then you come to Mount Sinai, where Moses is the mediator between God and the people. And there's, a, there's an agreement. We, we call it a covenant. Uh, you know, it's an alliance, a treaty, something. And there are, the laws are actually stipulations. If you, if you agree to this thing, here's some things that, that you need to do. And here's how your society should be ordered. Uh, and so that's, that's kind of what's happening there. And then, of course, there's the, you know, the creation of the tent where God's presence is. And, and, and from then on, you basically have this covenant is the reality in this covenant god is the reality and people are playing it out so how you know they come into their own land they come settled judges they they're doing terribly god keeps sending you know deliverers uh so we have a king we have kings do they do well yes no prophets then to counterbalance the 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 power of the kings and to bring them back you have an exile because the people don't don't they don't just don't do well the kings don't do well and god you know god beyond everything they deserve brings them back to their land uh, but of course the nation of israel and the kings ultimately fail in 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 some sense they're they're not up to the task of being the light to the world that they're supposed to be and uh and so you you have now uh you know where where you where you had the the covenant which was in, you know, under Moses, amazing. Now you have the upgraded version, and this is coming through uh, this man, Jesus. Uh, I think you've talked about this before, Jonathan, but how there are multiple prophecies of the Messiah coming in there, and there are, of course, but they didn't really know what that looked like. And it was probably uh, only as Jesus died uh, that many people realized he really was the Messiah, just, you know, just like the... uh, the uh, Roman centurion said, this, "You know, this is really the Son of God." Uh, so, through the the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus, a new covenant is born that really does solve the problem of human independence and uh, disobedience. So you have, you know, you have the four Gospels because, well, you know, Jesus is the man, and we got to have four because. You can't you you just can't cover it all in one or two or three. You probably can't really cover it in four. Then how does that work? How do the people of God now live? How's it spread? Uh, then you have a bunch of letters by Paul and others to churches and to individuals who are trying to uh, reflect on the life and teaching of Jesus. And what does this mean in a certain situation? You know, you're having uh, uh, you know Philippians. There's probably some sort of squabbling going on there. Well. Let's look at Jesus. He was came down as a you know he didn't have to come down. He humbled himself, and so you know what? Since he did that, you should do that and work it out. 
you know, work it out between you guys because this is how this works. And of course, you get to the to the end where there's this very weird and unusual uh, book, Revelation. And by the way, it's Revelation, not Revelations. People are always saying, oh, you know the book of Revelations? It's really Revelation or the Apocalypse. And uh, and it's it's very strange. We don't use this kind of literature anymore, really. But it's it's fabulous and it's picturesque and and just as we started, human beings started in this garden with God and in intimacy. So at the end, there's a kind of garden-like city. Uh, I think uh, one of your one of your favorite guys, John Mark Comer, right? Garden City. Uh, there's this garden city, and he um, you know he makes this. It's it's actually probably better than the Garden of Eden. It's you know like the Book of Job. It was good before things went bad, and not only is it good again, it's way better actually. So it's like that. Uh, we, and we have that to look for. So that's kind of the trajectory of how God does things to to solve this problem and bring back relationship with us that that we've broken, really. Everybody's broken it. Okay, so let me let me repeat that back to you. So so we start off with Genesis, and you described this in the previous question, like God's nature and character is kind of revealed by the fact that he makes us and we're not just slaves, but we're made in his image, which seems quite revolutionary from what you're saying at the time. And we're told to be fruitful and multiply, which is great fun. Um, and, and then we have the problem of the fall. We have the problem of the fall. I like the way that you talked about the seed of the woman because you know, when I was growing up as a kid, I would, I would hear that. It, um, I think I would hear it at Christmas time in like the, in the carol service. And they would talk about the fall, uh, at the beginning of the carol service. And when they would say to the word, uh, you know, when the serpent, uh, when God's saying to the woman, your seed will crush the head of the serpent. I always thought like there's going to be an enmity between, uh, humans and snakes that was my first thing as a child and then i thought there's going to be an enmity between us and satan or the demonic or something uh but actually you're talking about a a a covenant that god's building right there or at least some kind of prophetic plan that god's building right there where he's actually going to provide a biological figure that gets inserted into history that is going to be somehow defeating what has just happened in the fall yeah, exactly. I mean, I think it probably reflects several of those things you've said. But and there is a debate about this. Uh, the, I think they call it the proto evangelion or whatever, the proto gospel, the seed of woman bruise. You know, you'll crush his head and bruise your heel. Uh, but I, I kind of think that's probably right because uh, you do have somebody in the in the human line who becomes the one who truly defeats Satan, even though. You know, if they had read this and thought about Satan originally, they wouldn't have said that about the serpent. But, but from the latter perspective, from our perspective, that's what it's looking like. And of course, you see all the genealogies that go back to maybe David or Abraham. Uh, I think it's, I'm not sure if it's Luke. Maybe Luke goes all the way back to, you know, Jesus, who is, you know, all from the line of Adam, the son of God. So, yeah. Okay, so we, so we move from... So we move from God has a plan at the fall, like even at the fall, God has some plan of redemption. Then we move through, we get Abraham and the patriarchs and there's almost like God sets up a special trajectory for Israel as well, which his seed is going to fit within. But that's kind of like, 
another slight thread to it, which, you know, we have to find out where we fit until later, I guess. Mm-hmm. And then you're, you're saying that Exodus is so important because there's uh, the Exodus, there's, there's this divine rescue plan that kind of has this symbolism that ties all the way into the New Testament when, when Jesus is coming uh, as a savior, not just for Israel, but for mankind. There's this Exodus imagery that's coming there as well, right? So, so we have Exodus where God gives the covenant, the law to his people, kind of the playing rules, as it were, like yeah. the, the way in which they're supposed to play. Uh, but they can't do it. They just, they're, they're stuck and they have successive judges and then kings and prophets to keep the kings in check, but they just can't do it. So we, we, we get to, by the time we get to Jesus, we have to have Jesus. I guess there's no other way, right? Theoretically, it could work, but in reality, it's not, it doesn't work and you, you need something bigger. The, uh, the thing about the, the law of Moses is uh, we, I think there are some statements that Paul makes that we really latch onto, and we think, you know, this was, this was just to show how bad we were. Uh, but actually, if you take all the statements that are made throughout Scripture, the law was actually seen as something brilliant and way ahead of time. In fact, in Deuteronomy, they say, you know, this will show what a favored people we are and what a great God we have. Uh, and and uh, and actually, if you look at the laws, you realize, you know, they cover they cover not only what we would say is spiritual things, but they cover all kinds of places in that we would have in our own society. We have way more many laws than they do. You know, it covers everything from, you know, you know, diet to uh, health and safety. You know, all of those kinds of things. What do you know? What 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 do we do? If your neighbor's tractor crashes through repeatedly your fence and destroys your barn, well, okay, well, there's a way of dealing with that. It's that kind of thing. So it's eminently practical, and they never saw it as being an onerous thing or, oh, man, we have to make another sacrifice. Oh, no, everybody in the world has to make sacrifices. This is awesome what we get to do. It's really good. So, But the reality is it only had some some effect on uh, on. Uh, humanity and on on sin, and as the writer of Hebrews says, you know it, it couldn't really it couldn't it didn't really affect the conscience so much. It couldn't couldn't do everything it needed to do, which is why Jesus had to come. Right. So then we we get to uh, we get to Jesus, and he's talking to the Pharisees, and he's irate. You you know he's saying you hypocrites, and it, like it feels so. St- strict that he's talking to the church leaders and saying you hypocrites uh but he's talking about that fact right you're keeping the letter of the law but you're not managing to keep the heart aspect right you're not you're not like your heart's not postured towards god yeah let me let me just say something about that jonathan uh sometimes there's a miss there are many misunderstandings obviously but uh even isaiah you know going back to isaiah 58 where you know god says i hate your festivals all this stuff the point is not that God hates their festivals. The point is that, that you know, you can have an awesome worship time, but if you're if you're going home and beating your wife, and you're not, you you know, you owe people money, but you're not giving it to them because you you just don't care. Well, th- th- then that that makes your worship useless. Um, and and I think, you know, God, God is not not saying that those things aren't important because otherwise He wouldn't have instituted them. Uh, but but it there there's other parts to how we live that are 
even more important. You know, you should, you should, you should do your, you know, tithing your dill and mint and whatever cumin, but without forgetting the greater things of the law, grace and mercy and all of those kinds of things. Gotcha. Okay, that's so good, so good, G. Um, okay, so let's let's move on. So I think we feel very comfortable with the gospel message. I think this is where. John three sixteen swoops in and like that does explain now what's happening um, for the for the rest of it and Revelation we'll leave that for another series <laughs> um, but let's talk about the books of the Bible I was um, uh, shocked maybe appalled to find out that we'd reordered the books of the Hebrew Bible I found that out last year and I I was incensed as to why we'd do that um, but I I heard this um, expression Tanakh Tanakh and can you unpack that that for us? What was what was the Bible that Jesus would have read, uh, and what else have we added onto it? And how how does it all come together? Yeah, well, the the term Tanakh, or sorry, I have to unmute myself here. the The term uh, Tanakh, I don't even remember how to say it properly, but uh, basically stands for the Torah, the first five books, uh, the Navim, which is the prophets, and the Kethuvim, which is uh, the writings, and so they uh, they sort of built these the this the Old Testament scriptures the Hebrews did uh, into three parts the uh, Torah being the most important part and sometimes you you hear the Torah which means you know in law or instruction uh, it can refer to those five bits it can f- refer to the Old Testament a whole Old Testament or it can refer to the actual laws that Moses gave so you have to be careful about that and you see this threefold uh partition in Luke 24:44 where Jesus talks about the law and the prophets and the psalms probably the psalms being the first and biggest most important part of that last kathuvim the writings uh, but yes so we've reordered we've reordered it and basically what we've done is we followed the order of the Greek uh, old testament so probably like now there are several different translations some more popular than others and what we what we call now the Septuagint uh, was originally it was it was in Hebrew it was a Hebrew version, but long before the time of Jesus, it was put into Greek, and it became very popular. So if if you do any sort of reading on this, you realize Jesus used or quoted from the Septuagint uh, two thirds, maybe three quarters of the time. He referred to uh, he quotes from the Masoretic, what we would call now the Masoretic text. Uh, that which is the Hebrew Old Testament we've been talking about, uh, you know, another another third or so, and then there's a few other times he he quotes in a way that we just don't even understand. So Jesus felt quite quite fine in jumping between versions when it suited him. Uh, but we we follow the order of the of the uh, Septuagint, and I think it has some advantages. I haven't thought all the way through this, but one of the advantages I think for us is that. Part of it is much more. Uh, maybe it's maybe it's a bit more uh, historically. You know, it's easier to sort of follow the historical timeline, at least up to about halfway. But even and and of course, the last three books of the Bible are sort of the last prophetic books in timeline. But um, but you know, the Hebrew the Hebrew order has chronicles at the end. And Ezra and Nehemiah are right before that. Where and of course in in our version and the Septuagint, they're they're translated much earlier. Uh, but even in, in in our version in the Septuagint, 
they still ordered things in a, a way that we would never do. You know, so Isaiah, 8th century, then Jeremiah, 7th century, then Ezekiel, 6th century, then eventually, you know, then Daniel, which wasn't part of the prophets, it was, he was a writing. Uh, then, you, then you start into the 12, and they're all mixed up. So, um, you know, so the, and then in the middle, of course, you have Psalms, Proverbs, etc. So, so the order is maybe a, a little bit um, more historically, you know, chronologically based, maybe. Right, right. And do you think that that has implications in the way that we read it? Like, as we read it in a different order, will the, will the order of the book spell out something different for us? I, I haven't thought deeply on this. I, I, I think off the cuff, I would say absolutely. We, we think of things deeply, or you know, we think of things differently depending on how it's ordered. Um, but I don't. I can't say off 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 the bat. You know which one's better. I think it's good to think about what would it be like if this was later. If this was done later. I think one of the things about the the Hebrew Bible order is it's very clear. The first five books are a thing. It's it's a thing. This is the basic thing, and everything that we do has to be based upon this. Everything else is secondary, uh, and so. You know, the, the 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 prophets are more about how does this work, and and how do we, you know, how does God try to correct it? And the writings are just something else, really. So I, I think that that might be the advantage to the the Hebrew way of thinking of things. Okay, very cool. That's great. Okay, so one more thing before we go on to doing some breakout rooms, so people can talk about this stuff uh, for themselves. Um, the styles are really different through the Bible. So th- there's there's three kind of broad terms, right? We've got narrative, writing, poetry, writing, and discourse. Um, why are there different styles? What's the what is the what is the benefit of having different styles? Like my, my I remember my dad uh, got given a T-shirt with um, Bible spelled out as basic instructions before leaving Earth, and uh, that seems. Um, like a misinterpretation of what the Bible is, right? Like it's like I think it's missed the point entirely. But but why is it not in in the style of uh, a manual? You know, uh, could it have been easier for us, or you know, why is it doing that? Well, I think one of the reasons is so we don't get bored. <laughs> so you have a lot of different authors. You have multiple authors. This is more like an anthology in some ways, except that we realize. There is, a, there is a divine author who is choosing and guiding this whole thing. Uh, but I, I think it's, it is brilliant because, uh, A, and, and this is one of the fascinating things, is this whole idea there's multiple kinds of literatures, even within a literature. So you might have a song in the middle of a narrative or a piece of a poem within a narrative. Uh, genealogies, you have all kinds of things. Uh, in here, and part of it is, I think, because how do you how do you describe God and who He is in the fullest way possible? You, you know, one way of talking about God is not enough. You have to have multiple ways of talking about God, and and also because different people resonate to different kinds of literature. So, so you know, you might you might be reading a genealogy and be thinking this is the most boring thing on the planet, but you know, if you if you lived in the in the sixth century BC, 
you would think, oh, this is incredible. You know, times, personalities, all those things. Um, and, I, and on that same topic, I think it's important to realize we, we need to be a little bit smarter than we normally are when it comes to this. Because, you know, in our normal life, we, we'll, read, we'll read poetry different than we'll read a, a story, a, you know, a novel. But when it comes to the Bible, some, we throw out everything that we, that we sort of know or instinctively know about reading different kinds of literature. Um, and and I, you know, my classic uh, example is a friend of mine who's a very, very smart, really sharp woman. And uh, she said, you know, this passage here, people keep telling me it talks about Satan. And I said to her, well, you know, let's forget this is the Bible for a second. Read this. Tell me what it's about. Well, it looks like it's talking about the king of Tyre. Like, yeah. And part of the reason people think it's talking about Satan is because the imagery of this person walking among, you know, in the garden of God and the ruby stones, well, that never happens to a human being. But you forget that it's poetry. And poetry has this expansive, expressive kind of language that's being used. And so, and of course, it, it's very possible because God is the author of this, that there's a secondary meaning to it. But normally what happens is we throw out our brains and we just go to that thing, that spiritual thing, that spiritual thing, and we, and we miss the riches of the original kind of context and what it might have meant then. So um, I think it's, it's important to recognize different, different kinds of literature have different rules about how we understand them, and we allow the richness of those things to come to us. Uh, I know you, you're, you're, you're keen on this, which I love. Uh, one of my favorite things is narrative, and I'm fascinated by the ambiguity and the spaces and the, the brilliant, and I mean really seriously brilliant writing with minimal words. We talked about being minimalists. There are minimal words used in Scripture in these stories, and they have all kinds of ambiguity in them, which reflects real life. And uh, because we, we don't really think about that, we try to flatten them and leave out the tension and the ambiguity and the word plays and the, you know, we just flatten it all because we want, we want this, whatever this truth is, and we can't live with that. So uh, I love the fact that, that the Bible is multiple, um, you know, kinds of genres or literatures. What do you, what do you think about that? Yeah, it's, it's, it's a fascinating area, isn't it? I, I, I do love that there's different styles. I think it's an interesting one for us. Like you alluded to, um, you know, the thing about um, the passage in Isaiah, is it Isaiah where, where it's like, is this talking about the king of Tyre? Is it talking about Satan? What can we infer from it? It's funny because I feel like in, in church culture, we know that it's the infallible word of God. And we're going to talk about that next week, I think. Um, we know it's the infallible word of God um, and we know it's true. Um, and sometimes we take this thing and we think it is a basic manual that we can read in this scientific post-enlightenment fashion. And we can go A, B, C, D, E is next. And I can count on F coming right after that, you know. Um, but actually, it's it's much more nuanced than that. And there's, there is poetry. There's exaggeration in it. You know, it, it talks about... Um, Jonathan and Saul being uh, swifter than eagles and stronger than lions. And it's like, no, I, well, maybe they were. <laughs> we can't say that with confidence, but maybe they were, but probably not. Probably it's saying they were really fast and really strong that day and they did a great job. Or, you know, when it, when it talks in, in Joshua 10 about him going into the, um, 
into battle and, and destroying this whole region. And it says he didn't leave anyone alive. And then in the next book, it's like just after he's passed and, and it's like, and then Judah went up against um, all these people that were living in the land. It's like, hang on a second. Didn't you just decimate the whole land? So there's a bit of hyperbole going on here. Um, I found a really neat example um, just of, of, of these different types um, going on. So if, if we look at uh, Genesis 1, 6 to 9, uh, it says, God said, let there be a vault between the waters to separate water from water. So God made a vault and separated water from under the vault from the water above it. And it was so, and God called the vault sky and there was evening and there was morning the second day. Um, and God said, let the water under the sky be gathered into one place and let dry ground appear. And it was so, um, this is, this is clearly not a scientific text and it's clearly not trying to be a scientific text as much as we want it to. Um, but it is a narrative going on, right? But then if we take a passage that's saying the same thing in Psalms 33 verse 6 it says by the word of the Lord the heavens were made their starry host by the breath of his mouth he gathers the waters of the sea into jars and he puts the deep into storehouses I mean if we take it literally then that's a really bizarre way to understand the world like <laughs> you know just imagining like okay the waters of the sea are in jars I haven't ever seen these jars but um just trusting that they're there so it's clearly poetry like we feel comfortable with that being poetry but we, i don't know we have to be careful separating them right and then uh just the last one the discourse so just the technical writing of like trying to understand how this works and operates and maybe this is more like the manual but um talking about in colossians 1 15 the sun is the image of the invisible god the firstborn over all creation for in him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. And then that, I don't know, that, that seems like, okay, well, that makes sense. It doesn't, again, it's not giving me scientific detail, but it's telling me that it's Jesus is involved in all of this creation. So yeah, it's neat, isn't it? I, I, uh, I like that it's different, but it, it does present some challenges for us, doesn't it? I guess we've got to hold ourselves... Um, accountable in the way that or hold each other accountable in the way that we're reading them yeah that's right yeah i i agree i agree with you it's um it's you know i think scripture is one of those things where we kind of want it to be highly defined and there is of course black and white there's no doubt about that but there's a, a lot that it re really reflects life and it, we have to grow in it and we you know, we're going to learn some things and say some things, and then we're going to have to turn around sometime and say, you know what, I was wrong about that. Uh, I've just learned something new that I hadn't seen before. And um, I think it's a lifetime of growth, really. And it's an exciting journey. It's a journey into the heart of God. Thanks for joining us for this episode of Unpacking the Bible. Next time, we're going to be looking at how can we trust the Bible as a source of authority for our lives. Hope to see you then.